It has been almost a week and a half since Pope Francis issued his motu proprio, Tradiciones Custodes, placing restrictions on the offering of the traditional Latin Mass. Well, Bishop Caggiano is going to talk about the directives and what they mean for the Mass in the extraordinary form for all Catholics, and especially here in the Diocese of Bridgeport. In the second segment, we'll talk about the domestic church, and we'll take a particular look at Saints Joachim and Anne and Saints Louis and Zelie Martin. Keep your radio dial on 1350 AM for this really important conversation. You can also listen on your phone using the Veritas mobile app. Just go to the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or veritascatholic.com to download the app. You can also hear podcasts of this show there as well. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment for, with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad, the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit foundationsinfaith.org. All right, so this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I am Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, it's great to be with you today, because we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, we <laughs> sure do. Yep. You know, I'm not sure if you heard, Excellency, but Pope Francis issued a motu proprio a couple oh, weeks ago. I've heard. <laughs> oh, I have heard. I have read. You know, first of all, I just want to say this. Once upon a time, summer was dull and boring. <laughs> yeah, right. That's all gone now. Summer yep. is as crazy as the rest of the year. Busy things. And of course, um, and of course the Holy Father's motu proprio has certainly caused a major stir, has yeah. raised a lot of people's frustrations, anxieties, worries, right? And I think we should talk about it a bit today, hopefully to calm some of those worries and anxieties. And also kind of put it into perspective, because what happens when people get worried and anxious, or you listen to social media, it's things can easily be brought to their logical, ultimate, dire conclusions, and then, but that's unnecessary, right? Yes. It just makes people suffer for no good reason, because we're not going there, right? right? Yep. Yeah, social media is, is where the extremists on all sides thrive. But right. So, but, but uh, maybe, I know a lot of people have heard, but there's, it's certainly possible that there are some people out there who don't know what the Pope uh, said and, and issued in motu proprio. So maybe we could start there and with the problem, the problem that uh, this mo right. motu proprio is addressing. Right. Okay. So that's an interesting question because uh, um, I want to rephrase it, okay, if I may, because to call it a problem itself can cause anxiety. Sure. Because let's, let's talk about what is not at the issue. What's not at the issue, at least the way I understand it, is the, the, the right itself and the beauty of the right and the fact that there are significant numbers of people who have fallen in love, some for the second time, others for the first time, in the, ma in the Missal, the Mass celebrated according to the Missal of Pope 
St. Pius V of 1570, which was the missal that promulgated the reforms of Trent that ended in 1563. So seven years later, the missal was promulgated. And that was the mass we celebrated until the Second Vatican Council. So at least four centuries, right, we, we celebrate it. So in and of itself, you will hear people say, you know, this is the extinction of the right. This is an attempt at, abro at abrogating the right. I do not understand the motu proprio that way at all. Okay, because it does allow for its celebration. But what it is concerned, what the Holy Father is concerned about, is that in that community that attends the extraordinary form, what we used to call the extraordinary form, 99.9% .9 of those individuals are faithful, generous, obedient, active, participating Catholics in the lives of their parishes. They have no problem with the Second Vatican Council. They have no problem with the authority of the Pope or my authority as bishop or the authority of their pastors. They want to be good, holy people, period. And they go to the what we used to call the extraordinary form because they found it personally and spiritually beneficial. Now, no one can fault that. I certainly don't. Right? But that's 99.9%. There is 0.1% around the country, and through social media, you could be anywhere, where they're much more strident, all right? They're much more militant. And unfortunately, Mama used to say, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So part of what has happened is that very, very, very small segment has really gotten a lot of attention in social media, in print, and that is the issue the Holy Father at, begins, at beginning wants to address. That there is, there should be no place in the church for someone to call into question the legitimacy of the Vatican Council or its teachings or the liturgical reform it promulgated under the authority of Paul VI. So if it's a question of preference, that's quite legitimate. But if it's a question of this is right and this is wrong, that's where there is quote unquote a problem. And again, it's a very teeny segment, but they make a lot of noise, <laughs> right? Yeah. And unfortunately, because the majority of individuals are faithful, obedient, they love the church, they love the Pope, they're obedient to what they're being asked, you know, know that these people don't speak for themselves. But others may not know that. That causes part of this confusion. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The other thing that has happened yeah, that was an unintended consequence of Pope Benedict's, all right, motu proprio, if you remember uh, St. John, the, um, Pope St. John Paul II allowed the extraordinary form to be um, celebrated under bishop's supervision. And Pope Benedict freed it from the Pope's direct, uh, from the bishop's direct control. The bishop is still moderator. He's supposed to be, know where it's going on and kind of oversee it, but really it became a local decision. And what happened in some parts of the world, particularly in some parts of the United States, is that the bishop was not knowledgeable of what was going on. That decisions were made by pastors, you know, for whatever le legitimate reasons they thought, that they were attending to the pastoral care 
of their own people and questions arose as to whether or not it was their preference being imposed or was there a true desire among the people for this expression? And there was that bit of ambiguity going on. And I think Pope Benedict, in the end, wanted what's called in his motu proprio a mutual enrichment. That as the extraordinary form is celebrated in parish communities, that it would help inform the ordinary form, as we used to call it, the Novus Ordo, right? To do what? To reclaim some of the tradition that could very well and should be part of the ordinary celebration of Mass, including an occasional use of Latin or the use of chant or the rediscovery of silence in the Mass, or quite frankly, the beauty of churches so that they inspire, right? So, so he wanted it to be mutually um, encouraging, right? <clears throat> So I think the Pope Francis, having had all of these unlimited visits, right, over these years now, he is Holy Father now in his ninth year, doing the consultation that the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith did, hearing these concerns has tried to address them. And the major change is that it goes squarely into the hands of the bishop now to supervise the celebration of the Mass. And he made it clear that there is one unique celebration of the Mass, which is what we used to call the Novus Ordo. Now it is, he says, the unique order. So the extraordinary form remains valid, but they don't sit side by side as equals per se, but that one evolved out of the other. Okay, So it's almost like parent and child, right? but his desire is that the majority of Catholics, in fact, all Catholics, see the beauty and legitimacy of the Novus Ordo, the ordinary form, what he calls the unique liturgical expression now. And for those who do want the extraordinary form for personal spiritual enrichment, to be able to offer it to them where the bishop has a role to play in its supervision. So will the extraordinary form disappear in the Diocese of Bridgeport? Absolutely not. Absolutely not because my principal responsibility is the pastoral care of all the people of our diocese. And in this case, those who draw tremendous spiritual encouragement and beauty and edification from the, from the Missal of 1962, the Mass celebrated according to the Missal of Pope St. John XXIII, that that should continue in our diocese. What I need to discern, and I'm gonna ask people's patience, is that um, with the priests who do celebrate the Mass according to the Missal of 1962, and I will meet with them next week, is to discern how we can do that as broadly as possible and still be obedient to what the Holy Father is asking of us. And that's really the task at hand. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so am I um, hearing you correctly then? In Is the way to look at this to, to say that Pope Francis is taking us back to the way JP2 set it in, up? In a, in a sense. Okay. In a sense. In a sense, yes. That the bishop have a more direct supervision. Because part of the difficulty, again, the squeaky wheel, that one-tenth of one percent, right, they question papal authority for the Missal of 1970. 
they question why the bishop should have any oversight right, on the celebration of Mass. When the bishop is the prime, he's the moderator of the liturgy. So why would the bishop be the moderator of the liturgy for 95% of the Masses celebrated and not 5% of the Masses celebrated? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, and I'm a, a faithful son of the church, or I try to be a faithful son of the church. And um, uh, I guess from my perspective, my only feeling that is, is that it's, it's, it feels um, for such a tiny percentage of a, of a minority, it feels mm-hmm. like a, a big, almost, mm-hmm. I hate to say heavy-handed, but it feels like a lot <laughs> to address yeah, a tiny well, minority. It is very stark. I, the the motu proprio is very stark. It's very clear. It is, without a doubt. And I think um, part of it may be to try to correct the one-tenth of one percent. And sometimes, whether a, one, a person agrees or disagrees, um, There's a fundamental spiritual lesson here. And just as the lady look at the priests and say, well, you know what? They don't have fraternal correction amongst themselves. So a priest will see another priest celebrate liturgy really haphazardly. And even priest friends will not correct him and say, what are you doing? The same is true in every community in the church. Okay, remember, I was pastor, I had three communities. It's a rare person who will stand up and say, excuse me, but what are you doing? Why are you saying what you're saying? Right? And we're reluctant to do that. And in this community, that one-tenth of one percent, the vast majority of individuals knew who they were in all these different dioceses and communities, may have said it amongst themselves. They don't speak for me. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure they ever said to them, you don't speak for me. Yeah. Because I don't believe what you're saying, right? And again, one could say, well, then, is this an overreaction to a very small group of people? But sometimes you really have to have a singular, clear response to correct something that is small that in 20 years could become much larger, right? But there is a way forward. There is a way forward. Now, you may say, what is that way? Well, I'm not exactly sure. I am not, there is no plan yet because I need to meet the priests. Okay. Okay. And we need to talk about this. But some of some thoughts I have, I think um, whether or not there's a difference between using a parish church and celebrating the Mass as a parish Mass. The Holy Father does not want number two because he wants people to pray in a uniform way in their parish celebrations, right? But the use of parish churches needs to be clarified. So for example, if I as the bishop want to sponsor a mass for the extraordinary form, and I'm gonna delegate, I say, 10 priests who are competent to do it, and they will go on a rotation to celebrate the mass, and I want to host it in St. Esmeralda Parish Church. Can I do that? 
So there's a difference between using the parish church as a host and using the parish church as the sponsor. And one of the things I'm intuiting from the motu proprio is that the mass, wherever it's celebrated, should be sponsored by the bishop directly with the cooperation of pastors who will either say, Bishop, we need it. Bishop, we want to continue it. Bishop, we want to host it. And then we work as a collaborative, as a, as a group together to sponsor the mass so that the people of God can have what they desire to have, right? But, but it doesn't cut the bishop out. The bishop's actually the sponsor of it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And so in, in that in that model, then you can still have the traditional Latin Mass in a parish church? Yeah, I would think so. Okay. okay. Well, I would think so. And I have just written to the prefect for the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments. I just sent the letter two days ago asking this very question for a definitive clarification. Right? Because if the response is yes, you may use a parish church, which I believe is going to be the answer, then I think, in effect, um, I'm not sure you're going to see any dramatic change in the life of our diocese, in the places where the Mass is offered on Sunday. On a weekly basis, it's only offered in three churches. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay. No, I'm sorry. It's offered... No, it's offered actually in five churches. Five of our 80 parishes have it as a regular Sunday Mass. Others have it like on the weekdays, but have it on Holy Days of Obligation. Right. But once this a month. month, yeah. Right, once a month. It is conceivable that the time of the Mass may change so that one cannot confuse it as being a parish Mass. That I'm not sure of either. I will need some guidance. And that is why I, I said we will have to wait till the end of September because I need to go to competent authority. I am not competent in myself to make those decisions. I need guidance from Rome, right? And other bishops will too. But, but I think my involvement in it, I think is important because mm -hmm. I have no intention of restraining it, restricting it or stopping it. I just want to be able to moderate it. And I want to ensure that the people who attend it are actually being pastorally cared for. Yeah. Right? You've heard me say many times, Steve, the goal is to get to heaven. So I don't care if you go to Mass, as we now, in the unique expression, which we all share, whether you go to a, a, a celebration of Mass, as the Neocats have permission to modify it, or if you go to the Maronite Mass, or you go to the Melkite Mass, or you go to the, 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 the Mass of, of the Missal. But I don't care. In the end, as long as we get to heaven, this is the goal here. Yeah. And it's all about your personal holiness, your relationship with God. So what bishop in his right mind would say, this extraordinary form can't be celebrated in my diocese if people are actually growing in holiness by going to it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, particularly, there seems to be like um, a growing uh, hunger for the traditional Latin Mass, too. And mm -hmm. I mean, here in our diocese, but also you, you read about it elsewhere. So yeah, I mean, that, that sounds right. You wouldn't want to quash that hunger no um no no but the other thing too is very interesting people may not know this four years ago maybe actually maybe it was five years ago i invited the institute of christ the king mm -hmm. to come to the diocese and as you know they are a, a religious congregation they they live they set up their structure as oratories they are devoted solely to the extraordinary form not just of the Mass, 
but all seven sacraments. And I invited them to the diocese because I had two concerns. One is I wanted to make it clear that I believe there is a value in the extraordinary form for those who find it a value for them. But I also believe that if you are drawn to the Mass, you may be drawn to other sacraments as well, celebrated in the old form. Yes. And the Institute does a phenomenal job of forming and preparing and celebrating and accompanying people as parishioners because if you are drawn to those sacraments, then the question is, why would you not become a parishioner where the Institute is, where you have it all, all the time? Mm -hmm. So the Institute is in this diocese. I don't envision that changing at all with the motu proprio, because right? they are an oratory which is allowed in the motu proprio. Mm -hmm. They're caring for a community at St. Cyril. Right? Mm -hmm. So that's part of, I had already intuited that they would, and now there is a growing ask for other sacraments and that we need to discern in parishes. Yeah. Right. How we would do that if we do that, because we have the Institute also doing that for anyone who comes and everyone who comes. So that's part of what we'll have to think through in the next, you know, couple of months. Yeah. But I will tell you this, my friend. Um, in our diocese, there are, it has come to my attention, particularly in the last few months, even before the promoter proprio was, was issued, maybe because there was rumor that something was coming, of homilies that now, because they are live-streamed, can easily be transcribed, of homilies offered by priests in our diocese, who perhaps unintentionally are calling into question the authority of Pope St. Paul VI and the Missal of 1970. Um. There are some priests who have said the only Mass that truly is worth going to is the Missal of 1570. And it's in black and white. So someone could look at Pope Francis and say, this is uh, heavy-handed, this is this, but you know what? <laughs> yeah. if, there, if there's scattered instances of this happening, even in our diocese, which are now coming to light, it may be happening elsewhere. I'm sure it's happening in lots of different places. That got to his ear. And as, this, as the guarantor of unity, he has to take action. Yeah. Because those positions are not valid. Right. Yep. Yep. And once again, it's not coming out of the mouths of the faithful. Because the faithful are not saying that. <laughs> the faithful are faithful. It's the one or two squeaky wheels. Yeah. Yeah, there's a... Um, I don't know if you've seen this, Excellency, but there's a short 10-minute video of Scott Hahn talking mm -hmm. and uh, he brings up the the traditional latin mass and it's circulated over the past week because for obvious reasons oh i've not seen it I okay seen it. so summarize it for us so he says he says from you know obviously he says obviously every valid mass is heaven on earth mm -hmm. it's heaven on earth and so we mm -hmm. need to 
let's see, what did he say? He said, we need to affirm the validity of the Novus Ordo Mass, right? In his pers- from his personal preference, he believes that the traditional Latin Mass is superior for some reasons which he outlines. But he said, you need to, even if you, if you embrace the traditional Latin Mass, you have to avoid becoming a mad trad. Mm-hmm. And he said, he's, he called himself, he said, I myself am a glad trad. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and every mass, every mm-hmm. valid mass is, is timeless and, and mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, it's heaven on earth. It's valid and it is, is licit and it, is, it should not be rejected. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, he... he you know, Mama used to say, a thousand years ago, that she drew great comfort that she could go anywhere on earth and go to the same mass celebrated the same way. Now we've come to the point where there's plurality. And what Scott Hahn is suggesting is precisely the temptation that they don't sit side by side, but one is superior to the other. And what the Holy Father is saying is, If you want to go that route, the superiority goes with that which is now promulgated for universal prayer in the church, which is the Missal of 1970. They can be, okay, there is no no terminology now acceptable to speak of ordinary and extraordinary. That is gone. So there is the unique expression, and then there is the mass celebrated according to the Missal of 1962 which is valid, beautiful, transcendent. But he made it clear that they don't stand in the discipline, the liturgical discipline of the church, side by side as if you can pick them because that in some way skews the historical development of one coming out of the other. And of course, Scott Hahn and others may disagree with that, but that's ultimately what Pope Francis is saying. Yeah, and 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 I think um, Scott Hahn would, in the end, always be obedient to his bishop. Of course he would. So of course he would, because yeah. fa- that's my point. The yeah. faithful are faithful. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let me, if you don't mind, Excellency, uh, and you may not have the answer to this yet, because as as you said, mm-hmm. you're still studying it. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, can you? Can we have um, Latin and some elements from the traditional Latin Mass incorporated into the Novus Ordo? Oh, excellent question. Excellent question. Excellent question. And the answer to that question is that mutual enrichment that Pope Benedict is not going to happen organically. It has to happen intentionally. Mm-hmm. So I think the modo proprio is also an opportunity, because the Holy Father says very clearly at the end of it, that there are abuses in the, in the now the unique form, right? and they have to be rooted out. I 105% agree with that. And part of what has to be rooted out is not the sin of commission, it's the sin of omission. Right? And I think we have to have a very healthy discussion in the presbyterate here in the coming months to say, why is it that a person may have a such a 
profound spiritual encounter with Christ in the celebration of Mass according to the Missal of 1962. And the equally good faithful Catholic does not feel equally nourished in the celebration of the Mass from the Missal of 1970. Right. And you will hear there's a hermeneutic of rupture that somehow they broke. I don't think that's true. But what I do think is that there are elements that were laid aside that, to your point, need to be reexamined now 40 years later to say, why are they not here? So I'll give you a perfect example. The Kyrie is in Greek because when the Mass was in Latin, it reminded us there was an earlier version. We were... Ev- so why is there in the celebration of the mass in our typical parish, there's almost, almost no expression of Latin in the mass? I'm not sure what answer people would give, but from my estimation, this is the moment to ask the question. Yeah. And it's one thing, Steve, to say to the people of God, you know, the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God, we're going to sing it in Latin, because this is who we are. We're the Latin church. It shouldn't take you long to figure out what it says because we've said it in English. I mean, you know what it says. Right. So when you sing it in Latin, you could do it consciously, actively, fully because you know what you're saying. Yes. Right? So it raises a question when it comes to the use of Latin in the parts of the Mass. What's an appropriate reincorporation for all Masses? The use of chant, right? And hymnody. Right? But particularly chant in the parts of the Mass that could be more reflective. That chant could be sung in English, it could be sung in Latin. It could yeah. be sung in Italian, it could be sung in whatever language you happen to be speaking. You know, at offertory or communion for a meditation to allow people to participate in the silence of their hearts, which is active participation. But why are we not doing that in a lot of churches? Yeah. Right? Or how do we incorporate reverence? And you've heard me say, Eucharistic spirituality, why do we come into church and we not reverence the Lord? Who is here? I mean, what are you doing? (laughs) So that's kind of, it does raise those questions. And I think that is what Benedict wanted. He didn't want two forms of the Mass competing with each other. He wanted them to be almost like in dialogue with each other so that they could be mutually enriching. And I I would presume that the people who come to the ordinary form now or the the unique form, they would be profound. Everyone would be profoundly nourished by the experience. So we have work to do, right? We have work to do. And I'm sure Mm -hmm. this is a conversation that we're going to keep picking up as, as things develop and as, as you learn more and, and develop your plan more. So we'll keep talking about this, I'm sure. Yeah, but before we break, though, just yes. as an aside, for those people who are listening, who love the, the Missal of 1962, have discovered it, and they, have, they, 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 they draw tremendous spiritual fruit from it, I don't want you to worry. I don't want you to be anxious. Okay, because the mass is not going to disappear. That much I could say very clearly. It will not disappear. Now, mechanically we could figure out, but I've gotten lots of letters where people are pleading, and I have absolutely zero intention, zero, to say we're not going to celebrate this. Absolutely, that will not happen. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Excellency. 
So we'll be right back. We're going to talk about the, the domestic church on the other side of the break. This is Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. So, um, uh, Excellency, you have reiterated many times uh, on this show that our primary focus um, for people needs to be uh, our personal holiness, you know, and strengthening the holiness in our families, which then will in turn strengthen um, the greater community, you know, but we start with the domestic church and we start within ourselves and our families first. So, um, you know, whatever is else is happening in the macro church, uh, we, we have more control over what happens in our micro church, right? So maybe we can, we can start with, you know, what is the domestic church really, Excellency? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, for us to appreciate what Lumen Gentium 11 speaks of, which I'm going to quote in just a second, it's only two sentences, really. Again, kind of in an analogous way, Christianity arose out of Judaism in our belief that the messianic promise was fulfilled in Jesus. Judaism is essentially a domestic religion. It's a household-based religion that while, while there is the invitation and in some communities in Judaism, the expectation to go to temple, to go to synagogue every week, but the actual passing on of the Jewish faith occurs in the, in the family, literally at the table, right? The mo- one of the most sacred rites of Judaism and Passover is led by families. It's not led by the rabbi. So there is this intuition that the faith needs to find its primary and first mm. fundamental expression in family life. And that's carried on in our faith as well, right? We learn that from our elder brothers and sisters who are our Jewish brothers and sisters. So Lumen Gentium in in, uh, article number 11 says this, the family is, so to speak, the domestic church. In it, parents should by their word and example, interesting phrase now, be the first preachers of the faith to their children. They should encourage them in the vocation which is proper to each of them, fostering with special care vocation to the sacred state. Now, let's take that apart, shall we? Okay, the domestic church, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with you. Ecclesia, to be called out. So in a marriage that is is bound together by sacred matrimony, a husband and wife is called forth to create a single person out of two who, if it is God's will and their openness, please God, and fidelity to their faith, that they will have children who are the expression of their love and co-create with God without whom there would be no life. So they form this group called out of the larger group to do what? To bear witness to Jesus Christ, who is at the heart of that little community, that little church. So the onus falls on parents because they're the adults in the group, right? 
To do what? To love each other first, and by their word and example, be preachers of the faith. Now, let's stop right there. You're a parent, I am not. When I say to you, you are to be a preacher of the faith to your children, what does that mean to you, Steve? Yeah, uh, to me, you know, what Rula and I try to do is we, um, we actively try to talk about the faith on a regular basis and teach them through lives of the saints and, and what we understand of Catholic teaching at the dinner table through our words, but then also um, we try to live it the best we can. And I think one of the disadvantages parents, or at least these two parents in the Lee house have, is that our kids watch us all the time. And we're not always living it, but we try. Right. Right. But you know what, my friend? You, You described it beautifully. That's what they mean by word and example. Now, there's an interesting commercial that I stumbled upon um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, extolling the value and need of foster parents. And basically the, the, the tagline is, you don't have to be perfect to be a foster parent. Right? Well, you don't have to be perfect to be a Catholic parent either. Right? Because what more powerful expression could there be that when you lose your temper, say, which I'm sure you never do, but let's say you do, <laughs> okay? That you offer sorrow and an apology, contrition, to if it's your wife or your children, when the waters have calmed. So that's the example that they will need when they fall, in whatever way they fall, when they sin. That's preaching the faith, right? See, we always understand preaching. So this is, uh, this is fascinating. There's a whole theology of preaching that says the ordained preach, which is true, <coughs> in the pulpit, break open the word of God, absolutely. That's why only clerics, only those ordained, actually preach in the sacraments. But Lumen Gentium is saying, that parents preach the word of God in a powerful way because preaching is making the gospel evident and effective. Evident and effective. And it's your example that preaches more loudly than your words. Now, in baptism, for the longest time, we've spoken about this before, the right said that you were the first teachers of the faith. Teachers and preachers are not the same thing. And now in the new translation of baptism, it says you are the first witnesses of the faith. Witnesses and preachers tend to, to fit better together. Because when you teach, it almost implies you're passing on a body of knowledge. No. To preach the word is to help create an encounter with the Lord. So the domestic church, that cell where Christ in in a marriage that's trying to be truly holy, a family, Christ at the center, it's really all a question of helping everyone in that family encounter Christ. Because then the ecclesial church will then bring the encounter and build on it to speak of the language of faith, 
the communal celebrations of faith, the sacraments. So you plant the seed as a parent, and then the ecclesial church helps it to grow. But if there's no seed, what's going to grow? Nothing. Right. Nothing. Right. And notice that's the other, the other part of this. Um, they should encourage them in the vocations which is proper to each of them. Mm. You, you've heard me say this before. If you go to the catechism of the Catholic Church, I'm paraphrasing, but to seek holiness is to seek the will of God and to respond to that will of God as completely, as generously, as selflessly as you can. For holiness lies in doing that. The vocazione, to be called forth, right, is another way of saying a parent should encourage their children to find the will of God in their life and to respond to it. We're taking special care if they are called to the states of life that serve the larger community, religious life, diaconate, priesthood, all the rest. So in effect, um, it, what's the domestic church all about? Is to foster the holiness of one another. That's really what they're saying. This is really what that's saying. Hmm. Now the question is, how many families are actually doing that in this very strange, challenged time we live in? That would be a question that would, you know, could have quite a lively discussion. <laughs> yeah but not a fruitful one, right? Not a fruitful one. Mm-hmm. So the, the church, the, the church um, has a mission to go out and evangelize the world. I wonder, does, then, does the domestic church also have that same kind of mission or is, is there something different about it? All right, so I'm gonna complete what you said because I, I think you stopped just a little bit short. Okay. If the mission of the church is to go out to evangelize the world, it is so that they may accept the salvation offered to Jesus Christ and get to heaven. The purpose of the church is to get everyone to heaven. It is the universal sacrament of salvation, according to the Vatican Council. Right? So in the end, um, the church should be at the service of families in the pursuit of of holiness for its members. And that's lived in the rough and tumble of life. Mm-hmm. To seek holiness means you seek many times forgiveness. You pick up lots of pieces. There's lots of mistakes that cause tremendous harm and hurt. And the church is there to help bring healing and forgiveness in the pursuit of holiness. That's why if you look at the life of St. Paul, oh my mm-hmm. gosh. And yet, look what he did once he, he in truly count, encountered Christ and his redeeming love. My gosh. Talk about a man on fire. So, yeah. So the church, one of its primary missions is to bring every family to heaven. So, we just we just celebrated um, the feast of uh, Saints Joachim and Anne, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I mean, talk about a a, mm-hmm. a family with a lot of holiness, right? <laughs> well, 
It's interesting. All right. I've always had a great devotion to St. Joachim and Anne. And since I was a little boy, because my mother did. My mother had tremendous devotion to St. Anne as the mother of Our Lady, right? So these are the maternal grandparents of the Lord Jesus. Yes. To my knowledge, we know the name of the paternal grandfather. It's actually the paternal foster grandfather of Jesus is Jacob, the father of Joseph. I'm not exactly sure the tradition ever really learned the name of his foster grandmother on his father's side, on his foster father's side. But anyway, we may know it, and I just don't know it. All right, but, so my mother had great devotion. And of course, I've said this before, you know, my mother's big thing is, you know, good trees produce good fruit. So obviously, if Our Lady is as she is, then she came from a family that, as everything I described, fostered that in her, right? I mean, it, they were the incubator of that holiness, even though she received those singular graces. Right. But the scriptures, the, the canonical scriptures do not speak of Joachim and Anne, right? They're not mentioned. Right, that's right. It's only in the Proto-Evangelium of St. James. And for those who may not be familiar, that is a, a gospel of St. James that appeared in the second century that circulated in the Christian communities, but was not accepted as canonically authentic. Which doesn't mean that everything in it is false. It just means that it's not canonically accepted as part of the sacred scriptures. And in it, <coughs> it speaks of Joachim and Anne. And there's a very interesting, there's a very interesting story. You know, it says that Joachim was a very rich man, gave to the poor, and when he went to temple, as was the tradition, his sacrifice was was rejected by God as a sign of the displeasure for whatever reason that God may have had, right? And their childlessness was seen as a sign of divine displeasure. So he withdrew, he fasted, right, for 40 days, and the angel appeared and said, you are going to have a child. And then there's this beautiful image, okay, of Joachim and Anne embracing at the city gate of Jerusalem. And it is the symbol of the moment where the angel's prophecy came true. And that Anne, who would have been older, perhaps sterile, nonetheless, she gives birth to Jesus. Right? It's almost, it, oh, I'm sorry, to Mary. <laughs> Thank you. It, it, um, it almost uh, echoes the story of Hannah, right, with the birth of Samuel. In fact, Anna and Hannah are the same roots. Oh, yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. Right. And same thing with Elizabeth, right? Wasn't Elizabeth the story of the, of, of the birth of John the Baptist? She also? Yes. Right? Was yep. elderly and, and, right. You know. But, there's a, but, but before we leave them, though, there's one thing that I, I, I you know, I, I do research. I try to do some research before we meet to compliment, you know, the little I may already <laughs> know. And, uh, and I do emphasize little sometimes, but there are some neat things about St. Anne, you know, she is in the Quran. Oh, wow. Yeah, she is known in the Quran as the mother of Mary, which I thought was quite interesting. Huh. Right? But, but there's this, this early depiction. I want you to think, think about this. But picture this in your mind. There is a painting in the Middle Ages that was made. And in it is depicted Joseph and Mary 
in the carpenter's room where Joseph obviously did his work. And there is a young Jesus there and his grandmother, Anne. And Jesus is depicted holding his finger and you could see that there's a little blood because he must have injured his finger on a piece of wood or a nail. Or, you know, in a carpenter's, there's lots of sharp things. Right. right. And who does he go to? He goes to Anne. He goes to his grandmother. And that is just such a beautiful, in my mind, such a beautiful image of the remarkable role Anne played. Yeah. Not just in Mary's life, but in the Lord's life. Yeah. See, because we forget, when we say the domestic church in the 21st century, we oftentimes talk of mother, father, and children. But in Jesus' time, the domestic church was mother, father, brothers and sisters, children, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, who all many times lived communally or lived in the same village. So, you know, one of the things Pope Francis did was create grandparents and uh, the day for grandparents and the elderly. Yes. We just celebrated it. Yep. But I think that's, he wants to retrieve that intuition too, that the domestic church now perhaps needs more of a presence of grandparents, precisely because grandparents can be compelling preacher of the faith to their grandchildren. Yes. Just like the Lord Jesus in that depiction Okay, which is obviously an artistic rendering, but was going to his grandmother. Right? Yeah, it's beautiful. See, and I did not have the, the I, I only knew, I met my, my, my paternal grandmother, my paternal grandfather once in my life. And my maternal grandmother, I met many times because she was alive even when I was studying Rome, and my Maternal grandfather I met only once. So I wish I had known them more. When I saw that picture, it kind of, it was just a very interesting reaction in my heart. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So, Excellency, we have like five minutes left in this segment. And you look at Joachim and Anne and you're like, well, yeah, of course they're saints. Mm -hmm. They raised Mary as their child. But if you look at, let's say, Louis and Zelie Martin, and they raised oh. saints, but that mm-hmm. was not, you know, a, mm-hmm. a perfect family uh, along the way. But no family is, except the Holy Family. The rest of us kind of, we have issues, right? <laughs> but it's interesting. Um, Louis and Zelie, they, so obviously, St. Therese, they are her parents. Yes. A canonized saint. One of her sisters is a servant of God. Her cause is opened. They had, of their children, five went into religious life. Five went into religious life. And he originally wanted to be a monk, right? And then discerned not to. And, and Zelie actually had contemplated religious life and didn't. And he became a watchmaker and she became a lace maker and she was more successful than he was. So he gave up his business to join forces with her because, and then she died young, right? And he loved nature. He loved his children. He was a very quiet and reflective man. 
he had created a room in his house, in the very top of the house, which was kind of like his private sanctuary, where his children could come only if they spoke the things of God. You didn't come just to jabber. You came to speak the holy things, the sacred things. But you see about the preaching of the faith? I mean, these, this remarkable couple preached the faith. See what they gave birth to? Right? And no, it wasn't a perfect family. Of course not. But again, you don't have to be perfect to get to heaven. Right. You have to strive for holiness with your, all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, to love God and love your neighbor. That's how you get to heaven. Right? I think... But, uh, go ahead, Excellency. No, no, please. Please. I was just going to say, it's so... It's... um. You know, it's easy for me to look at, at Zelie and, and Louis and, and even Joachim and Anne and think, boy, I stink. <laughs> what, what would you say to, to, you know, to those of us who sometimes feel that way? Okay. I would say this. Um, humility is a good thing. Um, ingratitude is a bad thing. Because you don't stink. And anybody who knows you knows you don't stink. But you are not perfect either. So I know you to be a grateful man for the graces God has given you. So just remember those graces and be grateful for them. Right? Because the only thing God will ask you to do is your very best in every circumstance you find yourself. But you're humble enough, and I know your wife to be humble enough to be able to go back and ask for pardon if something is done that in hindsight you say did harm I should not have done used offered bad example right and I'm sure Joachim and Anne were not perfect okay I know Joseph was not perfect okay our lady was but she was the seedbed of the Messiah. She was the seabed of, of God taking on human flesh. So she had unique graces we don't have. So what's the saying? Um, do not crucify, I'm going to paraphrase, the excellent on the altar of the perfect. So I think just be encouraged. That's really the bottom line. My advice to you or any parent who's listening to this and say, you know, gosh, I wish. Yes, work on it. But don't be discouraged because that gives in to the one who wants you to fail. Do not give him an inch. Do not do that. Yeah. Yeah. We need to be merciful with ourselves. And many times we are apt to forgive others faster than we are apt to forgive ourselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think... One of the things that I learned from reading about, um, especially Louis uh, Louis Martin, because um, you know Therese when she was younger could be stubborn, and her sisters talked about the tantrums that she used to throw, and uh, one of the things that we've been kind of intentional about recently, Rula and I, is that yes, we have to discipline our children, we have to correct them, and that is loving to do so. But um, correction shouldn't be the only thing they hear from us. And I think we need to be, uh, or we try to be intentional about letting our kids hear us say things like, I'm so proud of you, or 
you have such a beautiful heart or I see this thing that you're doing and I just love it. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, in the end, um, I think parents need encouragement more than anything else. Because we have many parents who are trying their best and can easily be discouraged. And we need to encourage them. And when you look at the life of the uh, St. Therese's parents, I mean, they, they, they never made the headlines, did they? No. But they found encouragement in each other. And remember, he lived 17 years longer than she did. Right? And at the end of his life, was ill. Right? And needed to be cared for. But they found encouragement. Right? Yeah. First with each other, and then he found encouragement with his daughters, and of course in grace. Yeah. So we have to pray. We have to pray for one another. Right? We have to yes. pray. Okay, so we're running out of time. So let me just, let's take our final break. This is Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network, and we'll be right back. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, thank you for indulging such a long conversation today. Um, oh, yeah, but I appreciate the opportunity to speak about both topics. They're extremely important. Yeah, yeah. So here's the, the question that we have for this week. Um, came in from Maria, and she says, what is the church's teaching on tattoos? Mm-hmm. Well, um, again, it's a great question because they're in vogue, right? Yeah. Um, I recently encountered someone who, uh, except for his face, every visible part, he had a T-shirt and dungarees, but his forearms, hit the top of his hands, his neck was tattooed. Wow. Right. Yeah, that's exactly my reaction. I said, wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the, the primary principle here is the care for our bodies. Right? That our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And therefore we need to care for them and respect them. Because they are not just an object to be changed or altered or mutilated at our pleasure. Right? So therefore, is there an intrinsic evil to be tattooed? I do not believe so. And I will stand corrected if there is some teaching that I am not aware of that the church or the congregation has issued. I'm not aware of it. Right? But I, so I, will stand, I will easily stand corrected. But it really is a question of what are you doing? Why are you doing it? To the extent that you are doing it that needs to be really examined. Because I think it, you get to the point where you can be actually unintentionally disfiguring yourself or mutilating yourself, or you're su subjecting yourself to potential harm that there may be no apparent reason or justification to do. Right? Everyone has a beauty, it does. So why? hide it is really what it comes down to. Yeah. So, summarize, to my knowledge, there is no prohibition, absolute prohibition against any tattooing, but 
One needs to, before you do one or more than one, why are you doing it? What's the intent, what your intent? What is it that you plan to do? It cannot certainly, it cannot be, all right, in opposition to faith, right? Um, to the extent that you plan to do it, and your intent can never be to disfigure. Your intent can never be, well, this will make me more beautiful. Because in a sense, that is not, you are already beautiful, regardless of what anybody else says. In, your, in God's eyes, you are beautiful. So I hope that helps. Yeah. So if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and so is Veritas Catholic Network. Big thank you to Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Excellency, would you please give us your blessing? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Holy Father, send your spirit upon us, the Holy Spirit of consolation and encouragement, discernment and wisdom, that we may always remain faithful to you. And we ask your blessing in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Steve, nice to speak with you. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Excellency. Talk to you. All the best.